Lord, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to come together as family and friends uh, to worship you. Lord, to know any truth about you, to know anything of your goodness, of your unsearchable greatness, of the works of your hands, of your character, is a privilege. And so this morning we respond uh, in worship. We respond with hearts and minds that are focused on your glory. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time, uh, that it would be first and foremost for your glory, and that you'd be honored in it. Uh, speak to us um, and uh, grow us in Christ-likeness. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Turning your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is where we were last week, and we're going to go there again and finish out this chapter this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read this chapter together, and then we're going to pray. So let's, um, you read silently as I read out loud, but uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to read all 16 verses. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. God, we are asking you now to add to the reading of your word via exhortation that you will add to the reading of your word this week in small groups via the teaching that you would be clear, that your spirit would speak clearly to hearts and that your word and the truth that we are looking at and embracing this morning would, would divide and pierce like a two-edged sword. And that I would be free 
from the temptation to motivate people to stay committed, but that I would embrace by your design to expose and explain. And that heads of household and small group shepherds and deacons and us as elders, that we would go from here this week with what you've said this morning and we would help it along and not just leave it at lunch today, but that we would help it along. And we need your Spirit's help to do that. We are not capable, and you are. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, last week, we looked at the first half of this chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And one of the things that we saw right off the bat is that people are going to leave. Folks will walk from the faith. Folks will leave the church. And the reason they'll do that is that they will be deceived into believing something that's not the gospel. So he starts off this chapter with people are going to leave. People won't stay. And they won't stay because they're going to be deceived. They're not going to be hearing and understanding really who God is and what his gospel is. They'll be deceived. The second thing we looked at is that this deception is influenced by demons. But deceivers, you don't see them coming. If, if you see it coming, it's not deception. So, it's among us and around us and it's subtle. Changing the gospel, not getting it right is a subtle move. And it's among us and we have to be careful. And what's behind it are, is demonic influence. The enemy would wish that among us subtly, those that preach and teach and explain would shift away from Romans 4. Shift away from that. Away from Christ being sufficient in his cross as atonement. That we would embrace other things. And that's what we see happening right here in this passage where Paul says, there's people among you who are saying, don't eat certain foods and don't get married and profess Christ. And so what they've done is they've reduced the gospel. And we, we looked last week. We can't reduce it to statements like, that's what it's all about. This gospel story that we have is big and rich and sophisticated, and yet children can get into it. It's an amazing thing. And so we swim in the gospel. We don't get it and move on. Because getting the gospel and moving on, there's nothing else to move on to. And so that is how we come to what we're going to look at specifically this morning is verse 11 through 16. Um, one of the things that we mentioned last week that is if we, if we preach and teach a gospel that is reduced to profess Christ and then do a few things, what that will foster is an environment where whoever's preaching will have to motivate those who have professed to stay committed to what they professed. And so the preacher becomes motivational to keep 
us all committed to a professing. And yet Romans 12, 2 says, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by swimming in the gospel. When you learn more about him and his gospel, when we, we study the particulars of our faith and the implications, what does this gospel mean? What, what are the difficult verses to understand really mean? And when, when they start to connect and we see this whole book as the story, we see it as big and rich and we swim in it and that is what will keep us. That is what we need. Not to be motivated to stay committed to what we said. Do you see that? And, and what's very difficult about swimming in doctrine is that we have experiential truth. We have experiences that we know to be true. We have experiences. Things that we've seen and felt and walked in. And we have those and they're strong. And many times that keeps us from engaging absolute truth. The truth of the scripture and many doctrines in particulars. And when experiential truth wins, we say... That's too hard. Uh, I don't see it. That's a little weird. It doesn't line up with what I've experienced. And you miss a particular, and you miss swimming in this ocean when what you've experienced wins. And that's subtle, and that will blind you. And many will leave because they'll be deceived. How? Subtly. With deception. Take great care with this gospel. Paul moves on to specifically address this young pastor that he's preaching to. And he gives him a design for how to care and watch for the teaching. So we're getting a biblical design from, from God's word today. And he's speaking to a young pastor. However, there's going to be some implications. And I'm going to make a case for the fact that really he's speaking. Because he's speaking to a young pastor, he's speaking to head of household. He's speaking to small group shepherds, he's speaking to deacons, and he's speaking to elders. And I'll show you that in just a minute. So we're going to make that case. But let's look first, before we go to 11, look at verse 6. Because verse 11 is, is sort of a restatement of 6. In 6 he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and this good doctrine that you have followed what things? Put what things before the brethren. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the trifling summations. Remember we, we, Calvin said that? It's a trifling summation to reduce the gospel to profess Jesus and do these two or three things. Don't eat chicken and don't get married. Which is what these folks were saying. You can profess Jesus, but just don't eat chicken and don't get married. That's what it's all about. And they've reduced it. And as he, he says, if you put these things before the brothers... Silly myths, irreverent stories, reducing the gospel, trifling summations. You need to point those things out. Put them before the brothers. Call them out with gentleness and respect. Call them out. What are, what are these things? In verse 3, he said, you know, people who believe and know the scriptures know that God created all things and all things are good. People that believe, profess, but they also know they know God. They understand the gospel. They are swimming. The people who are knowing are swimming. And the people who believe and know. So what, what are these things? Lead your people to believe and know. Put these things before the brothers. Good doctrine. Words of faith. 
That's what he's talking about. Put these things before the brothers. And what will that mean? That will mean everyone who teaches, preaches, has position of authority. Head of household, small group shepherd, deacon, elder. That is how you serve Jesus best. You'll be a good servant of Jesus. You want to know what it is that you can do to really engage and serve him? Be a good servant of Jesus. It's not manufacture more stuff or get busy. It's put these things before the brethren. Put these things before the brethren. And then he says being trained. It's perpetual. It's continual. What do, we, what do we do next week? We don't need another motivational speech. We need more particulars. We need to put these things again before the brothers. We dig deeper and we swim deeper and we put them before the brothers again and again and again. Being trained in verse 6. It's perpetual. I don't get the gospel and then move on. I'm being trained in the gospel. What about next week? I'm going to be trained in the gospel. Well, what, what are y'all going to do in November? We're going to be trained in the gospel. Well, don't y'all have a Christmas program? Well, no, we're going to be trained in the gospel. It's perpetual. And a good servant will continually put these things before the brethren. You see it? All right, verse 11. Command and teach these things. What things? Same things he was mentioning in 6. Command and teach these things. I use the ESV. But I'm going to bring in the New American Standard in a couple of places here this morning because I think it handles this chapter very well, gives some great clarity. New American Standard says in verse 11, prescribe, prescribe. Same Greek word, different translated word in English, command, prescribe. I'm going to use both of them. Command and prescribe these things. And I'll, it may seem like a kind of a silly little stop down here, but I want, to, I, want to, I want to talk about command and prescribe for a reason. Those are... Authority words. Authority words. And you have to be careful when you start talking about authority in the church because we don't have a good track record of handling authority well. We don't, and those appointed don't. So what do we do with authority? Most folks don't like that. But command and prescribe are authority words. You think about prescribe. That's where we flesh it out. Prescription. A doctor has the authority to say to you, there's something wrong, and this is what you need. This is what you must do to get better. They have accreditation on the wall. They've been given authority to write the prescription, to say to you, I know what you need, and you must do this. This is essential. You must do this. Authority. Command, an order given. These are the orders that I've been given and I'm passing them to you. So understand there's a difference here between command and prescribe. If, if I'm taking this to heart this morning, I'm going to command and prescribe with authority. And there's a difference between commanding and prescribing and hoping or suggesting to you because to be honest suggesting this to you and then letting you go on your week just kind of hoping man I hope 
but never getting involved in your life to see if you're taking your medicine, but never following up with you at all, not dealing with you personally at all, that, that's more difficult. But I would much rather just say, look, I think it'd probably be good if you did these things. I think it'd probably be really good if you didn't put up with trifling summations. And I think it'd probably be really good. And I really hope you don't. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, position of authority and leadership, you have influence and a voice over others in the body, command and prescribe. You have the authority to say to these folks, put these things before them. Don't put up with this stuff. Get the gospel right. Command and prescribe. Authoritative language. You know, how in the world are we going to really get good doctrine without a command and a prescription? We're not going to through suggestions and hoping. Uh, Where else are folks going to understand and learn the particulars? They're going to learn them at church through God's design and through his authorities. That's where we get good doctrine. Now, these words imply that that there's some personal dealings. And, you know, you, I hear it a lot. We get this, we got this vibe around here like, man, you guys are really in each other's business. I hear, I hear it from others, especially in the small groups. Man, y'all are, y'all really take a lot of time to get involved with each other. And you personally deal with one another. What command and prescribe means is that dad, mom, small group shepherd, Deacon, elder, those people are going to take an interest in your life. If they don't, not a good servant. Remember verse 6, not a good servant. If they don't take interest with and don't take command and prescribe seriously, they're not going to get involved in your life. But if they do, they're going to take special interest in your life. They're going to get in your business. And that's not easy for them, and it's not easy for you. They're going to get involved, be concerned, ask hard questions, and make sure, command and prescribe, make sure that the gospel seed in you is bearing fruit and that you're understanding it. Command and prescribe. Um, I've I've been reading Richard Baxter. Uh, Some of the other guys have mentioned him before. Uh, I'm reading back through his book called Reform Pastor. That's not reform doctrine. That's reforming the pastorate. Getting the pastorate right. And one of the things that he says in here, I'm going to quote him. It's a little bit difficult to understand because of the, uh, the way he writes. But listen to this. If a physician should only read a public lecture on physique... Their patients wouldn't be much better. If your lawyer, nor would your lawyer secure your estate by reading a lecture on laws. The charge of a pastor requireth personal dealings. And that doesn't just end with the elders. That that flows to deacons, heads of household, small group shepherds. And I'm going to make a case for that in just a minute. Man, that, that personal dealings is a bad word to many of us. Don't get in my business. Don't ask me about my marriage. Don't ask me how the gospel's impacting my finances. Man, those are, those are difficult questions. And that's really none of your business. 
People will leave over command and prescribe. People will leave, maybe not the faith, but people will leave fellowship. And maybe they'll leave the faith, but people will break fellowship over command and prescribe. You're getting just a little too close. These particulars that you're preaching are really offending my sensibilities and how you talk to me. And people will leave over command and prescribe. So we can't blow past that word, those authority words. If people are going to leave over it, we need to, we need to see how, and I want to make this case for why this command and prescribe applies to head of household, small group shepherd, elder, and deacon. I want to show you this uh, quickly. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is head of household. Mom or dad. Single parent. Whoever this is. Head of household. Command and prescribe. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read the first nine verses. Speaking of the, God's word to his people, that's the context. God's word to his people and how it flows into the people. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, hear, people of God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit, on, sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Do you hear it? Command and prescribe, Dad. P- command and prescribe, Mom. Do you see the connection? Command and prescribe. Don't let things slide. Make sure they get it. Keep it before them. In your house. In the home. Head of household. Command and prescribe. I'm going to quote Baxter one more time in in speaking to pastors. This this pastor from, what, 300 years ago now? 250 years ago? He's impacted us in that he has had a very good handling of this idea of commanding and prescribing and the head of household. And listen to what he says. This has affected how our elders meet and move among our body. We are um, meeting with, some of you may not know this if you're down lower in the alphabet, but we're going through alphabetically the families to meet with every family in our church to make sure to see that prescribing and commanding is going on, to see that head of household is getting it and able to move like this. Is it a Deuteronomy chapter 6 movement? 
in these homes. Listen to what Baxter says. Speaking to pastors, he says, What are we likely to do ourselves to the reforming of a congregation? Now, when he says reforming, he's not saying just doctrinally. He's saying, what are we to do to change anyone? What are we likely to do to reforming a congregation if all the work be cast on us alone? And the masters of families neglect that necessary duty of their own by which they are bound to help us. If they could, if we could, but get the rulers of families to do their duty, to take up the work where you left it, help it on, what abundance of good might be done? Deuteronomy 6. Take up this message and help it on. Command and prescribe. Small group shepherds. Hebrews 5.12. Turn there. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. We'll just go quickly to this one. First of all, the, in terms of authority in a small group shepherd, you've been appointed by the elders. You, you've been tapped for a, for a responsibility to disseminate and teach and explain and lead discussion over what? Over what's been preached. Over good doctrine. Over the particulars. So there is a position of some authority where you're responsible for commanding and prescribing on some level with, these, with your folks. Hebrews 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be what? Teachers. You need someone to teach you again. So we have men in our body who are moving on from the basic oracles of God, moving on from milk to meat and saying... I'm eating, and I'm going to help command and prescribe in small groups. Pointed by the elders to this task. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Turn back to 1 Timothy where we started. And that's where you find the deacon and the elder. Because right before this chapter that we've jumped into the last two weeks, look at chapter 3. Just look at the headings there. Qualification for the elder, qualification for deacon. Do you see that? He's coming off of chapter 3 saying, this is who elders among you. This is who pastors and leads. This is who deacons among you. And this is what the, the, the pillar and buttress of truth look like. And so there's this appointment to look at verse 2 of chapter 3. For the elder... Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, able to command and prescribe these things. Look at the deacon, verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Deacons, when you're putting in some, helping somebody put in their water heater, and the conversation turns to, I'm having a hard time swimming. Are you able to hold to the mystery with clear conscience? Do you have a pure motive in helping them put that water heater in? Do you have a pure motive in being able to explain a clear conscience, not a seared conscience, but a clear conscience saying, I'm holding to this particular. I'm swimming with you. Or is there some sort of impure motive as you help the body? As you see glasses half full or some overflowing. What is your motive in that? 
Is it driven by the particulars? Are you commanding and prescribing? Are you prepared and ready to, to help it along? It, this infects small group shepherd. This infects mom, dad, head of household, commanding and prescribing. Now, look at verse 12. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. We're just going to keep moving through these verses. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Let no one despise you for your youth. This is not a biblical support for youth ministry, I don't believe. Uh, this, this gets used a, a good bit for, look, don't look down on youth. Give them something. You know, don't let anybody... They can teach too. They can... That doesn't fly because, for me, because Timothy's probably pushing 30. And so what he's saying here is people will look for any reason to stiff arm, command, and prescribe. And for you, they're going to say you're too young to be doing that. People will look for any reason to stiff arm, command, and prescribe. And for you, they're going to say, yeah, you're you really old enough to be talking to me like that? <laughs> Are you really old enough to sit there and say, you know what I need? People are going to do it. It sounds a lot like 2 Timothy 4. Listen to this. You don't have to turn there. It's, it's very similar to 2 Timothy 4. Next book, same chapter 4. It sounds like, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to what? Their own desires. Experiential truth. Their own desires. I will accumulate people who will affirm what I've experienced. And what Paul's telling Timothy and 1 Timothy 4 is, people are going to look for any reason they can. To, for experiential truth, what I've experienced and what I've seen and what I've felt, that wins. And they will do anything to stiff arm your commanding and your prescribing. So get ready. Set the example. Set the example. What do you do with that when you get stiff armed? You bear fruit. You keep abiding and you bear fruit. You set an example with your speech, with your life, how you live. Uh, I love how E.V. Hill, the old preacher from California, used to say it. it. It'll bear it out. He says, bear it out. Prove it. Bear it out. That fruit will bear out. That's what you do when, you, when it's stiff-armed. When you're command and prescribing, you stay the course. You hang on. You swim. You speak the truth in love, and it will bear out when the command and prescribe is stiff-armed. It will bear out. Now, here we come to what Paul would say is, this is what you do about all of it. This is how you move. This is what you do. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, and to teaching. Public reading of Scripture means, you ready? Read the Bible. In public. 
man, that's, that's not very flashy at all. Read the Bible in public. Right here. It's the muddy Jordan. It's, it's just what it is. It's God's design. And it's not seemingly, especially to our culture, not that impressive to read it. And then the exhortation is the preaching of it. The explaining what it means. And the proclamation. That's another word there is proclamation of what we read. And then the teaching is the explaining and discussing to make sure there's understanding. You see that? Read, preach, teach. Folks, that's what we got. That's what we've been given. That's our model. Read, preach, teach. That's it. And while it seems simple, it's, it's not easy. While it, while it seems to be something very simple, what we're reading, what we're preaching, and what we're teaching is wonderfully and beautifully sophisticated. And yet a child can get into it. Read, preach, teach. Here's a little social commentary. Let me, let me tell you what we're up against. When, when we, if we say, and if we really say that it's read, preach, teach, that's what we're to be doing. What does that come up against? This is what that comes up against. People will not sit and listen to the Bible being read together. Because they can do that in, on their own. I, I read the Bible on my own. I don't need you to read it to me. So there's this selfish, narcissistic way we come to this worship to say, really, you're just going to sit there and read to me? You got 20 minutes, and then they're going to check out on you. People will not put up with you sitting and reading the Scripture and then explaining it. They're not going to do it, which is an impatience with God's Word that has been fostered all around us. It's in me. I struggle with it all the time. An impatience with the reading of God's word. An impatience with the preaching. An impatience with God's word is impatience with God. And we come by it honestly. If you don't keep them hooked with something funny or inspirational, they're not going to keep listening and they're not going to understand what you're saying. I'm, I'm telling you things I've heard. This is just how I was taught to grow the church. This is what's, what we're being taught. To how, how do we do this thing and how do we make it grow? You've got to keep them hooked with something funny or inspirational or they're going to check it out on you and they really won't understand what you're saying unless you keep them. If you don't motivate them and encourage them somehow, they'll give up. They'll give up. Life's too hard. If all you give them are particulars of a gospel and doctrine... And all you do is read, and all you do is preach, and all you do is teach. Life's too hard. They'll give up. What about the kids? What about the kids? What about six and seven-year-olds? We got, we got to give them something. Because they won't surely sit and listen. 
there's this, this thing where you say, the, the kids need something extra. And yet, when we say those things, we have to be careful. Are we fostering and helping them be impatient with God's word? If we say to a six-year-old, I know you can't, and I know you won't, so here. Nintendo DS, whatever. I know that you won't, and I know that you can't listen, so here is a puppet. That's breeding and infecting our children and keeping them impatient with God's word. And I, I just want to encourage you. I'm encouraged that two years ago when we, or maybe as longer than that, when we had uh, the younger kids start coming in here more into worship, uh, I wish we'd had a video camera set up to, just to see the garden and, and just take a look at the garden. You know, when you're, when you're gardening and you go out there every day, you think, man, nothing's happening. But if you had a video set up back when the plant started out and then a year later or after the end of the season, you, have a, you see where it went. Man, there was, I'm looking around at six and seven year olds now who are starting to learn to not be so impatient with all this. Fruit. Read, preach, teach. I got this article that I was looking at about six months ago and I Pulled it back out. So, it's an article on an article. So, I don't really know what that is. But, it's good. Uh, Al Mohler, he basically drew attention to this article in Christianity, Christianity Today. And I just want to read you. This is um, Mark Galley. He's a senior editor, uh, one of the senior editors at Christianity Today. And he was talking about what he had heard on church staff when it came to reading, preaching, and teaching. Just that model. Read, preach, teach. Read, preach, teach. And what he heard from other staff members and from his pastor and from other folks in church. Galley was told to cut down on biblical references in his sermon. You'll lose people, the staff member warned. In a Bible study session on creation, the teacher was requested to please come back next Sunday prepared to take questions at the expense of reading the relevant scriptural text on the doctrine. Please take questions. Cutting down on the number of Bible verses, they explained, would save time, better hold people's attention, and their interest. Save time, better hold people's attention, and their interest. I, I have been told this. Man, this, your, your ministry is a little too heavy on the Bible study. And these kids need something fun to do so they won't be bored. You're a little too heavy on the Bible study. And what are these kids doing so they won't be bored? Impatience with God's Word. If we sit here and just resign ourselves to, look, kids are bored with the Bible. Well, let's just give up then. But let's teach them to not be bored with the Bible. And that's what's happening in many of your families. And I think it's slowly happening with my children. And I have to be patient with it. And I don't want to be. But I have to. And we have to encourage each other not to continue fostering this impatience with God's word. How does this read, preach, teach, reconcile with folks that say they know God? They know Christ. 
And yet, they won't come sit under, read, preach, teach. They won't engage the reading, the preaching, or the teaching of God's Word. How does that reconcile to say, no, I know God, I'm saved, but I just don't have any use for church? And, and here's the answer. It doesn't reconcile. And so we live in a post-Christian county, city, region, state. We're a post-Christian. We are at the point where we have said, we're saved, but I have no use for reading, preaching, and teaching. Later in this article, uh, Mulder says this, quoting Galley. It is well and good for the preacher to base his sermon on the Bible, but he better get to something relevant pretty quick or we'll start mentally checking out. Don't spend a lot of time in the Bible, we tell our preachers, and we do tell our preachers that, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Don't spend a lot of time in the Bible, we tell our preachers. Be sure to get to a personal illustration, example from daily life, and most importantly, an application that we can use Monday. This is a fixation on our own sense of need and interest, and it looms. A fixation on our own needs and interests, and it looms. Each human being in the room is an amalgam of wants, needs, intuitions, interests, and distractions. You feel like that? Are you an amalgam? (laughs) You feel like an amalgam today? Of wants, needs, intuitions, interests, and distractions? That's how I feel. Not when Ben preaches, but that's how I feel when anybody else preaches. (laughs) I feel that way when I come in here sometimes. Corporately, the congregation is a mass of expectations, hopes, consuming fears, and impatient urges. And all this adds up. Listen, all this will add up to, unless, unless it's countered by the authentic reading and preaching of the Word, all of those, that amalgam, it'll add up to group therapy, entertainment, and wasted time. Group therapy, entertainment, and a waste of time. If you don't have read, preach, teach. And that's where we are in our subculture. And that is why 1 Timothy 4 is so vital to us. Command and prescribe. Read, preach, teach. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. This, is, this will inform the biblical design that we have. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is where we get this design. This is where Paul makes this connection, the read, preach, the teach, okay? Look for, look for the read, preach, and teach as we read this together. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to read the first eight verses. And look for the pattern. Look for what God's people are doing and look for what the preacher teacher is doing. And, and look at how unimpressive this is. <laughs> give you a second to get there. Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. 
And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and all those who could understand. Listen, watch this. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The ears of all the people were attentive to the word. And Ezra and the scribes stood on a wooden platform and they had made for the purpose, for this very purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his right hand, and Padeah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. Plurality. You see that? And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people on his platform, and he opened it. And as, and as he opened it, all the people stood. That pew uncomfortable? <laughs> all the people stood while he read and preached, patiently and attentive. And Ezra blessed the Lord. The great God and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherabiah, Jamin, Echab, Shebethai, Hodai, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book. From the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Score. What's the goal? That people would understand the gospel. That's the goal. How do you get there? You read it, you preach it, and you teach it. In plurality, men who have been appointed to read, preach, teach, Help them understand God and his gospel. That's our design. And it, yeah, it's unimpressive. But it's here. And it's muddy Jordan type stuff. But it's what we got. Back to 1 Timothy 4. And the next verse, I want to I show you this. Look at verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Do not neglect the gift you have. Okay, let's, let's, let's put it through our grid. Mom and dad, don't neglect the gift you have. The position, the Deuteronomy 6 appointment that you have. As you go, as you sit, on your doorpost, between your eyes. Don't neglect that. Listen, do not be tempted. This is, this is a temptation that we all have. Let's not be tempted to farm out, subcontract, expedite, and manufacture the fruit of our children apart from God's design because we like a certain program. Let me, let me say that again. We, we can't be tempted... And, and listen, I'm not, I hope this doesn't come across condescending. I struggle with this too. 
I'd love to put in a VeggieTales that would just help them get it. You know, that way we wouldn't have to sit uncomfortably in here and sit uncomfortably in our family worship time with them yawning and throwing things. I would love to be able to put in a VeggieTales that would just, bing, they get it. Don't be tempted. Listen, to farm out, subcontract, and expedite and manufacture fruit apart from God's design. Read, preach, teach. Don't neglect your appointment. Small group shepherds, same goes for you. You find yourself tempted to bring the special illustration game. There's nothing wrong with those things in order to break the ice, but don't feel like you have to come up with something. Really, no trick up your sleeve. Read, preach, teach. Inform it. Inform it with passion and zeal. But don't feel like you've got to farm it out and subcontract and expedite it with some sort of program or creativity. Don't neglect your appointment. Verse 15. We're almost done. Practice these things. Devote yourselves to them so that all may see your progress. Here's where I'm going to bring the NAS back, the New American Standard. ESV says practice and devote yourself. The New American Standard says, take pain with these things and absorb yourself in them. That, I think that informs us a little better. That it kind of feels more like where we're at. Uh, when, I, when I practice and I devote myself to something, that, that I understand what that means. But when I'm sitting with my family, and sometimes when we're in small group, and it's noisy, and things are moving. There's a lot of moving parts. It, sound, it feels more like taking a pain with something. <laughs> it's work. Remember, toil, strive, train. Take great pains. Go to great lengths. Absorb yourself in what? The particulars of this gospel. It's going to take time and work. Take great pain over this. Absorb yourself in it. Practice. Devote. If you've been appointed to such a task, it makes sense that we would do this. It makes sense that we would take pain and be absorbed. But you're going to look a little bit crazy. Just get ready. If we do this and we keep moving like this, it's going to look like a little weirdy to people. And you, some of you already know that. That this is counter-Christian culture. We are countering the culture around us. And some of that's Christian subculture. And it is counter that. So just know there's going to be some sparks. Be ready with gentleness and respect. Show them with your life. Remember what he said? Set an example. Speech and life and love. Set the example. But this is countercultural. To take pains and be absorbed with doctrine and small group and family worship time. It's uh, countercultural. So get ready. Be ready. I've heard people say that about you. I've heard people say that about us and our leadership. I've heard people say that uh, personally to me that it's just different. And I want you to know and I want you to hear that we are not being different just for the sake of being different. This, this how, how we're doing this, cross point, this isn't a bright idea. We didn't come up with this bright idea that we'll do small groups and 
and that will catechize our children and that we would preach and that we would read the scriptures large chunks. That's not a bright idea. It's God's design. And it's now countercultural. So we have to trust him all the more. Remember what's at stake. Now, verse 16. Um, there's something called a chiasm. I want to briefly explain a chiasm to you if I can. I'm not probably the best to try and explain this to you. But a chiasm being breaking down a passage in such a way where you have uh, an informative point A, informative point B, C, and then D is this pinnacle climax truth that the passage swings on. And then you have C, B, A. Whereas on both sides of that, you have very similar points, very similar informative points that you lead up to and then you go away from. And there's this a, a sort of a chiasm here. Remember how he started this chapter? He started with what? The Spirit says expressly that people will leave. And then he goes into the hard work of doctrine. And the pinnacle and what this passage swings on is read, preach, teach. And then we go to what? Back to work. Take great pains. Practice. Devote yourself. And these doctrines in particulars. And then we end with not leaving. We end with staying. And being saved. Look at verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Starts out with leavers and deceivers. You work hard at doctrine. Read, preach, teach. Work hard and take pains. Some will stay. And if you do this, read, preach, teach, if you take pains with the doctrine and you spend time and you don't try and expedite and subcontract and manufacture and you trust his design, some will stay. And you'll be saved. And those that hear you in your great pain and hear you take great pains and are swimming with you in this ocean some are going to stay and be saved. And they won't leave. So, this doctrine, good doctrine, swimming in it, taking great pains with good teaching, uh, trusting, read, preach, teach. You know what that does? It keeps us. It keeps us from leaving. It gives us a, a, a maintenance and a preservation. It keeps us. This little intense chapter Ends in similar fashion to how it begins. This keeping, to me, I'm starting to see more and more, that's assurance. When I, when I have more particulars and when I come next week and when I let these particulars of the gospel infect Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Saturday, then... I'm looking forward to Sunday to get more particulars and get the gospel again and hear it again and be reminded, being stirred up by others in way of reminder. And there's a, a commanding and a prescribing that I need and I long for. And then I find myself being rested assured in that. Not in, not in what I said at six years old. Uh, not in the moment. Not, not, and not even this... Not even saying, I know that I know that I know that I know. 
that I'm going to heaven. I find less assurance in that when I, when I read chapters like this. I found more assurance in, I know that I know that I know that I need the gospel again today. I know that I know that I know that I need to be with the church on Sunday, hearing, read, preach, teach. And I need to be with the church on Thursday night, hearing, teach, and discuss, and flesh out. I know that I know that I know that. That I need to be reminded that Jesus is my righteousness. That's assurance. And look, when we, when we start saying things like this and you read, uh, when I posted this uh, verse on Facebook about eight months ago, uh, some of my former youth, two or three of them that I kind of thought would, uh, jumped on there. What in the world does that mean? That you will save both yourself and your hearers. What does that mean? You think you're going to save somebody? What does that mean? Explain that. And that's the countercultural rub. Because this doesn't fly with one saved, always saved. Kind of quippy sayings that we like to. Or it doesn't fly with know that you know that you know that you know. It's stay in it. Keep swimming. Keep learning. Keep knowing and believing. Believe and know. And that is difficult. But you will be kept Saved even by hearing and knowing the implications and particulars of this big reach, deep gospel story. And it sounds crazy. But we must swim together in these implications. Cross point, we must get it right. Read, preach, teach. Would you pray with me? God, I want to pray specifically this morning and ask that you would encourage us by your spirit and by the ministry of one another to encourage those with um, small children and um, those also who may have um, family members outside of this fellowship who don't understand this movement or don't understand um, or have questions about read, preach, teach, and how that's impacting us. I pray that you would give us great grace and patience and respect for a fellow believer. So that there would be understanding and more knowledge of you as a result. And not confusion and division. And we need your spirits help in that. And I pray God this morning that you would add your teaching and your understanding via your spirit to the word that we've read and the words that were preached, that you would add to it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we come to the supper, um, this is one of those reminders. This is a gift given by God, a sacrament to the church to remind us and remind God what we trust. And it's Ben and I were talking last night. This, this bread, similar to what we've talked about today, is pretty unimpressive. It's just bread. But it's his body broken for us, and it's his gift. So we trust him. And we receive this supper, this bread and this juice. We receive it 
from him. And we receive it knowing and believing that it is our only hope. That's it. If you know and believe that, whether or not you've had a good week or a bad week, if you come to this moment saying, I need Jesus, I trust him only, then this supper is for you. Even if you're saying, man, I've I've stubbed my toe, I failed, I made mistakes this week, you wouldn't believe. I was deceived. Man, I just really messed it up this week. Eat. If you trust Jesus, eat. Eat this supper with us. If you're saying, man, I don't know if there's got to be something else. I don't know. I really know if it's really just Jesus. I don't know if we can really trust in the atonement of him for everything. I, I just don't find myself in a place where I feel like I can trust him. And experiential truth is winning for you. This supper may not be for you. It's not for you if you don't believe and know that Jesus is your only hope. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. If you guys uh, feel like an amalgam of uh, desires and fears and distractions, um, just know that so does everybody else in here. And what we need in that is the Word. We need to read it, and we need to hear it preached, and we need to talk about it and teach it. And if, if, you, if you're struggling with that, then if you can reach around and swat somebody, you'll, if you can, far as you can reach, you'll find somebody that will tell you to stay in it. They're in it too. And they will, they will walk with you and eat breakfast with you and meet with you and encourage you and say, trust it. If he's that great, then his design is too. And it's good. And we have to encourage each other in it. So let's be an amalgam of all these things, trusting his word and his design and not our own creativity. Before we go, I want to welcome back uh, Ben and Nathan Green and Scott McCullough who came back from, uh, and Daniel McGraw went and um, came back from Tiapisca, Mexico. And they were getting to know a guy who has uh, been associated with us and he's um, kind of leading an orphanage down there and just has a pretty dynamic ministry going on. They went down just to see it and um, kind of see what's going on, see what this might look like for us and how we might help them. I would encourage you to get with Nathan and Ben. I'm hopefully there'll be some venues for we, where we can hear about what went on down there. And I'm sure you'll get some emails from Ben or from these guys. But I encourage you to get with Scott McCullough and Nathan too and hear their side of what went on down there. <laughs> um, you, you need to hear this. God has surrounded us with men who have got insight and experience that he is using informed by the word. And... Um, we're looking forward to hearing. We're glad you guys are back. Ben is the guy who regularly preaches here. So if you've been visiting and it hasn't been him, he'll be here next week, right? And Lord willing, if the Lord wills it. And throughout the fall, we'll preach every Sunday. <laughs> For a long time. I appreciate your encouragement and the, the pings that I've heard back from you uh, this week. And I pray that God will continue to encourage you via the word this week. Small groups are going to be kicking back up this fall, and uh, everybody's kind of got to get back into the school routine, and I beg you to re-engage that. Uh, if you've been 
not meeting and not going, I beg you to re-engage that. That's where this kind of takes root, is in, the te- is in the teaching part. So uh, let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this time in your word this morning, for this worship. Um, thank you for bringing Nathan, Scott, Daniel, and Ben back to us safely. We pray for uh, Krista right now, who we've sent to help Jake and Steph, that she would have fruitful ministry and time there, and that you would bring her back to us, if it be your will, safely in October. And um, God, we are thankful for what you're doing in us and through us. Help us to trust your design. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.